Santa Cruz, you got to be a cool guy if you're from Santa Cruz, right? Like no one ever goes, oh, this douchebag from Santa Cruz cut me off while I was... It's, it doesn't exist, right? There's no, oh, they yeah. just banish all the douchebags? Yeah. Don't they have, like, like the old-time dog catchers would have? Like, they just <laughs> come around with a van and hit the douchebags. Like, the guys are wearing, like, the Ed Hardy T-shirts in their 50s. They're like, sorry. <laughs> you head over to Buellton or something. Go have some fucking split-pea soup, douche. But we can't have you here. You're fucking our curve up. Yeah. Kevin, I mean, he really drives the ship in an amazing way on the show. And... You know, he is one of the guys that just brings not only, like, just funny, funny jokes, but a huge intelligence, and he just gets stuff done. Funny is good, and Kevin's funny, but bright, right. even even better. And the guy's just super high IQ. Exactly. Someone comes onto the school and... And you've got Kevin. Now, I'm sure Kevin's shit hot at Call of Duty, but it might not fucking cut it, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, Kevin, you might want to put on a gas mask around 7.45 a.m., you know what I'm saying? Everybody, it's me, it's Kevin. Welcome to this episode of the Life of Riley podcast. I'm going to try something a little different tonight. Um, one of the things about doing solo episodes of the show is, while it can be a lot of fun, there are so many fucking things I want to talk about, it's really hard to pick one. And some of the things that I'm planning on doing episodes on just because of the way my brain works require a fair amount of research because I like to be able to cite sources and back up what I'm saying outside of just my opinion, right? So I've been working on a couple of ideas and it always takes longer than you expect it to. But then the great thing is Sometimes something will just pop up and come along and a light bulb goes off and you go, that's an episode. I'm going to try that see what happens. And that's what's happening with this episode. Um, my friend Kate Minot posted something on Facebook a few days ago that... really, really answered a lot of questions for me. Like, it was like, God, thank God this is out there. And it's an article by a gentleman named George Lakoff. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. L-A-K-O-F-F. Lakoff, Lakoff. Um, and it's titled Understanding Trump. And I saw that title and I was like, oh God, please let this be something real. Let this be something thoughtful and concise and accurate and 
And it is. And it was. But for a Facebook post, it's very long. And even though I love to read, I've noticed over the last however many number of years that my attention span for reading things online has gotten shorter and shorter. I, I always want to get on to the next thing. I always want to, you know, and that's part of the problem, right? Because that's why everything is so truncated and not fleshed out and just bare bones and oftentimes flat out erroneous which is super fucking frustrating for me when I come across things online that I know to be false. But the battle isn't worth it because to respond to it would take so many words that nobody would read the full response. And so then you have to go, okay, well, what can I crap? What, what can I pack into the first paragraph or so? that'll get people engaged and it's Facebook. Nobody's fucking engaged, right? So I started reading this article and it just sucked me in. And fortunately I had some time in the moment because I don't know that I would have gone back to it had I not had the time to sit down and read the whole thing right then and there. Later, when thinking about ideas for the next episode, it occurred to me, this article occurred to me, and how much I would have loved to have been able to just plug my phone in in my car on my way to work or running errands or whatever and listen to the article instead of being... Um, confined to a chair reading it. Um, ridiculous as that sounds, that's kind of the way we are living these days, isn't it? It's like, oh, wait, I have to sit still for 20 minutes or a half hour and read something and learn something and educate myself. So that's where the idea for this came from. I'm just going to read the article. I'm going to try and do it without too much commentary as I'm reading it. There may be some portions where I just can't help myself, but I'm going to try not to do that too much because I haven't, I haven't read it aloud yet, and I don't know how long it's going to take. So depending on how long it takes to read and what kind of mood I'm in when I'm done, then maybe I'll add some commentary at the end or... Maybe we'll do a follow-up episode on it, something like that. So that's the idea here. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you listen to it. A big part of the reason that I've chosen to do this, other than what I just said, is I also know that a respectable percentage of my audience, or at least the people that have been listening so far, are international. Um, we've had a fair amount of downloads from New Zealand, some from Australia, 
a few from the UK. Uh, there was even a couple from Pakistan, I believe. Uh, I haven't checked the analytics in a while, but that's pretty exciting to see that, you know, people that far away are, are checking in. And obviously the, the New Zealand and, and Aussie and possibly even UK uh, listeners are no doubt due to my first episode with my friend Alice Dobby. And hopefully some came here from my guest appearance on Press X to Jump with Luke and Hamish, who will be on the show we're we're shooting for mid to late August at this point. Um, and I'm really, really looking forward to that. Those guys are fucking hilarious and intelligent and creative. And uh, if you haven't checked out their podcast, do so. There are links on my webpage, pretty sure on my Twitter, on my Facebook, and uh, more than likely I'll add a link here since I just mentioned them. All right, so I'm going to step away for a minute, collect myself, read through a little bit of this, um, and then we'll jump right into it. You guys won't really notice a break because I'm just going to hit pause. Be right back. Okay, and I'm back. That was painless, right? <laughs> All right, so here we go. We're going to read Understanding Trump by George Lakoff. Before I jump into the essay, give you a little bit of information of who Mr. Lakoff is. He is Distinguished Professor of Cognitive Science and Linguistics Emeritus at the University of California at Berkeley and Director of the Berkeley Center for Brain, Mind, and Society. His most recent book is the all-new Don't Think of an Elephant. Uh, I've never read the original Don't Think of an Elephant, but I have heard of it, and I think I want to read it now. <laughs> His previous books on politics and social issues are Moral Politics, Don't Think of an Elephant, Whose Freedom, The Political Mind, and The Little Blue Book, which he wrote with Elizabeth Whaling. So... That's a little bit of background on who this guy is and what his bona fides are for writing this essay. If you, like me, have been sitting back for the last 18 months or so wondering how in the fuck Donald Trump has gotten to this point, I think you'll like this article, this essay. Uh, you might not like everything it says, but at least it explains it. It explains how it happened. That's, that's my favorite thing about it. So here we go. Understanding Trump by George Lakoff. There's a lot being written and spoken about Trump by intelligent and articulate commentators whose insights I respect. But as a longtime researcher in cognitive science and linguistics, I bring a perspective from these sciences to an understanding of the Trump phenomenon. This perspective is hardly unknown. More than half a million people have read my books, 
and Google Scholar reports that scholars writing in scholarly journals have cited my works well over 100,000 times. Yet you will probably not read what I have to say in the New York Times, nor hear it from your favorite political commentators. You will also not hear it from Democratic candidates or party strategists. There are reasons, and we will discuss them later in this piece. I am writing it because I think it is right and it is needed, even though it comes from the cognitive and brain sciences, not from the normal political sources. I think it is imperative to bring these considerations into public political discourse, but it cannot be done in a 650-word op-ed. My apologies. It is untweetable. I will begin with an updated version of an earlier piece on who is supporting Trump and why, and why policy details are irrelevant to them. I then move to a section on how Trump uses your brain against you. I finish up discussing how Democratic campaigns could do better and why they need to do better if we are to avert a Trump presidency. Kevin here jumping in real quick just to let you guys know, this piece was written, um, I think, very quickly. It just came out on uh, July 22nd, and today is July 26th. I think he just kind of um, shot it out there. And so if you hear me stumbling at points, it's it's because there are some typos and missing words. Um, so it, it's not just so you know. Okay. Who supports Trump and why? Donald J. Trump has managed to become the Republican nominee for president. Why? How? There are various theories. People are angry, and he speaks to their anger. People don't think much of Congress and want a non-politician. Both may be true, but why? What are the details? And why Trump? He seems to have come out of nowhere. His positions on issues don't fit a common mold. He has said nice things about LGBTQ folks, which is not standard Republican talk. Republicans hate imminent domain, the taking of private property by the government, and support corporate outsourcing for the sake of profit. But he has the opposite views on both. He is not religious and scorns religious practices, yet the evangelicals, that is the white evangelicals, love him. He thinks health insurance and pharmaceutical companies as well as military contractors, are making too much profit and wants to change that. He insults major voting groups, for example, Latinos, when most Republicans are trying to court them. He wants to deport 11 million immigrants without papers and thinks he can. He wants to stop Muslims from entering the country. What is going on? The answer requires a bit of background. In the 1900s, as part of my research in the cognitive and brain sciences, I undertook to answer a question in my field. How do the various policy positions of conservatives and progressives hang together? Take conservatism. What does being against abortion have to do with being for owning guns? 
what does owning guns have to do with denying the reality of global warming? How does being anti-government fit with wanting a stronger military? How can you be pro-life and for the death penalty? Progressives have the opposite views. How do their views hang together? The answer came from a realization that we tend to understand the nation metaphorically in family terms. We have founding fathers. We send our sons and daughters to war. We have homeland security. The conservative and progressive worldviews dividing our country can most readily be understood in terms of moral worldviews that are encapsulated in two very different common forms of family life. The nurturant parent family, progressive, and the strict father family, conservative. What do social issues and the politics have to do with the family? We are first governed in our families, and so we grow up understanding governing institutions in terms of the governing systems of families. In the strict father family, father knows best. He knows right from wrong and has the ultimate authority to make sure his children and his spouse do what he says, which is taken to be what is right. Many conservative spouses accept this worldview up accept this worldview, uphold the father's authority, and are strict in those realms of family life that they are in charge of. When his children disobey, it is his moral duty to punish them painfully enough so that, to avoid punishment, they will obey him, do what is right, and not just do what feels good. Through physical discipline, they are supposed to become disciplined, internally strong, and able to prosper in the external world. What if they don't prosper? That means they are not disciplined, and therefore cannot be moral, and so deserve their poverty. This reasoning shows up in conservative politics, in which the poor are seen as lazy and undeserving, and the rich as deserving their wealth. Responsibility is thus taken to be personally responsible to be, sorry, this is one of those, is thus taken to be personally responsible, not socially responsible. What you become is only up to you. Society has nothing to do with it. You are responsible for yourself, not for others, who are responsible for themselves. Winning and Insulting as the legendary Green Bay Packers coach Vince Lombardi said, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. In a world governed by personal responsibility and discipline, those who win deserve to win. Why does Donald Trump publicly insult other candidates and political leaders mercilessly? Quite simply, because he knows he can win an onstage TV insult game. In strict conservative eyes, that makes him a formidable winning candidate who deserves to be a winning candidate. Electoral competition is seen as a battle. Insults that stick are seen as victories. Deserved victories. 
Consider Trump's statement that John McCain is not a war hero. The reasoning. McCain got shot down. Heroes are winners. They defeat big bad guys. They don't get shot down. People who get shot down, beaten up, and stuck in a cage are losers, not winners. The Moral Hierarchy The strict father logic extends further. The basic idea is that authority is justified by morality, the strict father version, and that in a well-ordered world, there should be, and traditionally has been, a moral hierarchy in which those who have traditionally dominated should dominate. The hierarchy is God above man, man above nature, the disciplined, strong, above the undisciplined, weak, the rich above the poor, employers above employees, adults above children, Western culture above other cultures, America above other countries, the hierarchy extends to men above women, whites above non-whites, Christians above non-Christians, straights above gays. We see these tendencies in most of the Republican presidential candidates, as well as in Trump, and on the whole, conservative policies flow from the strict father worldview and this hierarchy. Family-based moral worldviews run deep. Since people want to see themselves as doing right, not wrong, moral worldviews tend to be part of self-definition, who you most deeply are. And thus, your moral worldview defines for you what the world should be like. When it isn't that way, one can become frustrated and angry. There is a certain amount of wiggle room in the strict father worldview, and there are important variations. A major split is among, one, white evangelical Christians, two, laissez-faire free market conservatives, and three, pragmatic conservatives who are not bound by evangelical beliefs. White evangelicals. Those whites who have a strict father personal worldview and who are religious tend toward evangelical Christianity since God, in evangelical Christianity, is the ultimate strict father. You follow his commandments, and you go to heaven. You defy his commandments, and you burn in hell for all eternity. If you are a sinner and want to go to heaven, you can be born again by declaring your fealty by choosing his son, Jesus Christ, as your personal savior. Such a virgin version... Faux pas? Such a version of religion is natural for those with strict father morality. Evangelical Christians join the church because they are conservative. They are not conservative because they happen to be in an evangelical church, though they may grow up with both together. Evangelical Christianity is centered around family life. Hence, there are organizations like Focus on the Family, and constant reference to family values, which are to taken to be, which are taken to be evangelical strict father values. In strict father morality, it is the father who controls sexuality and reproduction, 
where the church has political control, there are laws that require parental and spousal notification in the case of proposed abortions. Evangelicals are highly organized politically and exert control over a great many local political races. Thus, Republican candidates mostly have to go along with the evangelicals if they want to be nominated and win local elections. About pragmatic conservatives. Pragmatic conservatives, on the other hand, may not have a religious orientation at all. Instead, they may care primarily about their own personal authority, not the authority of the church or Christ or God. They want to be strict fathers in their own domains, with authority primarily over their own lives. Thus, a young, unmarried conservative, male or female, may want to have sex without worrying about marriage. They may need access to contraception, advice about sexually transmitted diseases, information about cervical cancer, and so on. And if a girl or woman becomes pregnant and there is no possibility or desire for marriage, abortion may be necessary. Trump is a pragmatic conservative par excellence. And he knows that there are a lot of Republican voters who are like him in their pragmatism. There is a reason that he likes Planned Parenthood. There are plenty of young, unmarried, or even married, pragmatic conservatives who may need what Planned Parenthood has to offer, cheaply and confidentially, by way of contraception, cervical cancer prevention, and sex ed. Similarly, young or middle-aged pragmatic conservatives want to maximize their own wealth. They don't want to be saddled with the financial burden of caring for their parents. Social Security and Medicare relieve them of most of those responsibilities. That is why Trump wants to keep Social Security and Medicare. Laissez-faire free marketers Establishment conservative policies have not only been shaped by the political power of white evangelical churches, but also by the political power of those who seek maximally laissez-faire free markets where wealthy people and corporations set market rules in their favor with minimal government regulation and enforcement. They see taxation not as investment in publicly provided resources for all citizens, but as government taking their earnings, their private property, and giving the money through government programs to those who don't deserve it. This is the source of establishment Republicans' anti-tax and shrinking government views. This version of conservatism is quite happy with outsourcing to increase profits by sending manufacturing and many services abroad where labor is cheap, with the consequence that well-paying jobs leave America and wages are driven down here. Since they depend on cheap imports, they would not be in favor of opposing high tariffs. But Donald Trump is not in a business that makes products abroad to import here and mark up at a profit. As a developer, he builds hotels, casinos, office buildings, golf courses. He may build them abroad with cheap labor, but he doesn't import them. Moreover, he recognizes that most small business owners in America are more like him. American businesses like dry cleaners, pizzerias, diners, plumbers, hardware stores, gardeners, contractors, car washers and professionals like architects, lawyers, doctors, and nurses. 
high tariffs don't look like a problem. Many business people are pragmatic conservatives. They like government power when it works for them. Take eminent domain. Establishment Republicans see it as an abuse by government, government taking of private property. But conservative real estate, real estate developers like Trump depend on eminent domain so that homes and small businesses in areas they want to develop can be taken by eminent domain for the sake of their development plans. All they have to do is get local government officials to go along with campaign contributions and the promise of an increase in local tax dollars helping to acquire eminent domain rights. Trump points to Atlantic City, where he built his casino using eminent domain to get the property. If businesses have to pay for their employees' health care benefits, Trump would want them to have to pay as little as possible to maximize profits for businesses in general. He would therefore want health insurance and pharmaceutical companies to charge as little as possible. To increase competition, he would want insurance companies to offer plans nationally, avoiding the state-run exchanges under the Affordable Care Act. The exchanges are there to maximize citizen health coverage and help low-income people get coverage, rather than to increase business profits. Trump does, however, want to keep the mandatory feature of ACA which establishment conservatives hate since they see it as government overreach, forcing people to buy a product. For Trump, however, the mandatory feature for individuals increases the insurance pool and brings down costs for business. Direct versus systemic causation. Direct causation is dealing with a problem via direct action. Systemic causation recognizes that many problems arise from the system they are in and must be dealt with via systemic causation. Systemic causation has four versions. A chain of direct causes. Interacting direct causes, or chains of direct causes. Feedback loops. And probabilistic causes. Systemic causation in global warming explains why global warming over the Pacific can produce huge snowstorms in Washington, D.C. Masses of high-energized water molecules evaporate over the Pacific, blow to the northeast and over the North Pole, and come down in winter over the East Coast and parts of the Midwest as masses of snow. Systemic causation has chains of direct causes, interacting causes, feedback loops, and probabilistic causes, often combined. Direct causation is easy to understand and appears to be represented in the grammars of all languages around the world. Systemic causation is more complex and is not represented in the grammar of any language. It just has to be learned. Empirical research has shown that conservatives tend to reason with direct causation and that progressives have a much easier time reasoning with systemic causation. The reason is thought to be that in the strict father model, the father expects the child or spouse to respond directly to an order, and that refusal should be punished as swiftly and directly as possible. 
many of Trump's policy proposals are framed in terms of direct causation. Immigrants are flooding in from Mexico. Build a wall to stop them. For all the immigrants who have entered illegally, just deport them. Even if there are 11 million of them working throughout the economy and living throughout the country, the cure for gun violence is to have a gun ready to directly shoot the shooter. To stop jobs from going to Asia where labor costs are lower and cheaper goods flood the market here, the solution is direct. Put a huge tariff on those goods so that they are more expensive than goods made here. To save money on pharmaceuticals, have the largest consumer, the government, take bids for the lowest prices. If ISIS is making money on Iraqi oil, send U.S. troops to Iraq to take control of the oil. Threaten ISIS leaders by assassinating their family members, even if this is a war crime. To get information from terrorist suspects, use waterboarding or even worse torture methods. If a few terrorists might be coming with Muslim refugees, just stop allowing all Muslims into the country. All this makes sense to direct causation thinkers, but not those who see the immense difficulties and dire consequences of such actions due to the complexities of systemic causation. Political correctness. There are at least tens of millions of conservatives in America who share strict father morality and its moral hierarchy. Many of them are poor or middle class, and many are white men who see themselves as superior to immigrants, non-whites, women, non-Christians, gays, and people who rely on public assistance. In other words, they are what liberals would call bigots. For many years, such bigotry has not been publicly acceptable, especially as more immigrants have arrived, as the country has become less white, as more women have become educated and moved into the workplace, and as gays have become more visible and gay marriage acceptable. As liberal, as liberal anti-bigotry organizations have loudly pointed out and made a public issue of the un-American nature of such bigotry, those conservatives have felt more and more oppressed by what they call political correctness. Public pressure against their views and against what they see as free speech. This has become exaggerated since 9-11, when anti-Muslim feelings became strong. The election of President Barack Hussein Obama created outrage among those conservatives, and they refused to see him as a legitimate American, as in the birther movement, much less as a legitimate authority, especially as his liberal views contradicted almost everything else they believe as conservatives. Donald Trump expresses out loud everything they feel, with force, aggression, anger, and no shame. All they have to do is support and vote for Trump, and they don't even have to express their politically incorrect views, since he does it for them. And his victories make those views respectable. He is their champion. He gives them a sense of self-respect, authority, and the possibility of power. Whenever you hear the words political correctness, 
remember this. There is no middle in American politics. There are moderates, but there is no ideology of the moderate. No single ideology that all moderates agree on. A moderate conservative has some progressive positions on issues, though they vary from person to person. Similarly, a moderate progressive has some conservative positions on issues, again, varying from person to person. In short, moderates have both political moral worldviews, have both political moral worldviews, but mostly use one of them. Those two moral worldviews in general contradict each other. How can they reside in the same brain at the same time? Both are characterized in the brain by neural circuitry. They are linked by a commonplace circuit, mutual inhibition. When one is turned on, the other is turned off. When one is strengthened, the other is weakened. What turns them on or off? Language that fits that worldview activates that worldview, strengthening it, while turning off the other worldview and weakening it. The more Trump's views are discussed in the media, the more they are activated and the stronger they get, both in the minds of hardcore conservatives and in the minds of moderate progressives. This is true even if you're attacking Trump's views. The reason is that negating a frame activates that frame. As I pointed out in the book, don't think of an elephant. It doesn't matter if you're promoting Trump or attacking Trump. You are helping Trump. A good example of Trump winning with progressive biconceptuals includes certain unionized workers. Many union members are strict fathers at home or in their private life. They believe in traditional family values, a conservative code word, and they may identify with winners. Why has Trump won the Republican nomination? Look at all the conservative groups he appeals to. I recently heard a brilliant an articulate Clinton surrogate argue against a group of Trump supporters that Trump has presented no policy plans for increasing jobs, increasing economics growth, improving education, gaining international respect, etc. This is the basic Clinton campaign argument. Hillary has the experience, the policy know-how. She can get things done. It's all on her website. Trump has none of this. What Hillary's campaign says is true, and it is irrelevant. Trump supporters and other radical Republican extremists could not care less, and for good reason. Their job is to impose their view of strict father morality in all areas of life. If they have the Congress and the presidency, and the Supreme Court, they could achieve this. They don't need to name policies, because the Republicans already have hundreds of policies ready to go. They just need to be in complete power. Any unscrupulous 
effective salesman knows how to use your brain against you to get you to buy what he is selling. How can someone use your brain against you? What does it mean? All thought uses neural circuitry. Every idea is constituted by neural circuitry. But we have no conscious access to that circuitry. As a result, most of thought, an estimated 98% of thought, is unconscious. Conscious thought is the tip of the iceberg. Unconscious thought works by certain basic mechanisms. Trump uses them instinctively to turn people's brains toward what he wants. Absolute authority, money, power, celebrity. The mechanisms are 1. Repetition Words are neurally linked to the circuits that determine their meaning. The more a word is heard, the more the circuit is activated and the stronger it gets. And so the easier it is to fire again. Trump repeats, win, win, win. We're going to win so much you'll get tired of winning. Two, framing. Crooked Hillary. Framing Hillary as purposely and knowingly committing crimes for her own benefit, which is what a crook does. Repeating makes many people unconsciously think, unconsciously think of her that way, even though she has been found to have been honest and legal by thorough studies by the right-wing Benghazi committee, which found nothing, and the FBI, which found nothing to charge her with except missing the mark C in the body of 3 out of 110,000 emails. Yet the framing is working. There is a common metaphor that immorality is illegality, and that acting against strict father morality, the only kind of morality recognized, is being immoral. Since virtually everything Hillary Clinton has ever done has violated strict father morality, that makes her immoral. The metaphor thus makes her actions immoral, and hence she is a crook. The chant, lock her up, activates this whole line of reasoning. Three well-known examples. When a well-publicized disaster happens, the coverage activates the framing of it over and over, strengthening it and increasing the probability that the framing will occur easily with high probability. Repeating examples of shootings by Muslims, African Americans, and Latinos raises fears that it could happen to you and your community, despite the minuscule actual probability. Trump uses this to create fear. Fear tends to activate desire for a strong, strict father, namely Trump. 4. Grammar Radical Islamic terrorists. Radical puts Muslims on a linear scale, and terrorists imposes a frame on the scale, 
suggesting that terrorism is built into the religion itself. The grammar suggests that there is something about Islam that has terrorism inherent in it. Imagine calling the Charleston gunman a radical Republican terrorist. Trump is aware of this to at least some extent. As he said to Tony Schwartz, the ghostwriter who wrote The Art of the Deal for him, I call it truthful hyperbole. It's an innocent form of exaggeration. And it's a very effective form of promotion. 5. Conventional metaphorical thought is inherent in our largely unconscious thought. Such normal modes of metaphorical thinking that are not noticed as such. Consider Brexit which used the metaphor of entering and leaving the EU. There is a universal metaphor that states are locations in space. You can enter a state, be deep in some state, and come out of that state. If you enter a cafe and then leave the cafe, you will be in the same location as before you entered. But that need not be true of states of being. But that was the metaphor used with Brexit. Britons believed that after leaving the EU, things would be as before they entered the EU. They were wrong. Things changed radically while they were in the EU. That same metaphor is being used by Trump. Make America great again. Make America safe again, and so on. As if there was some past ideal state that we can go back to just by electing Trump. 6. There is also a metaphor that a country is a person, and a metonymy of the president standing for the country. Thus, Obama, via both metaphor and metonymy, can stand conceptually for America. Therefore, by saying that Obama is weak and not respected, it is communicated that America, with Obama as president, is weak and disrespected. The inference is that it is because of Obama. 7. The country is person metaphor and the metaphor that war or conflict be between countries is a fistfight between people leads the inference that just having a strong president will guarantee that America will win conflicts and wars. Trump will just throw knockout punches. In his acceptance speech at the convention, Trump repeatedly said that he would accomplish things that can only be done by the people acting within their government. Sorry, that can only be done by the people acting with their government. After one such statement, there was a chant from the, from the floor, He will do it. 8. The metaphor that the nation is a family was used throughout the GOP convention. We heard that strong military sons are produced by strong military fathers, and that defensive country is a family affair. From Trump's love of family and commitment to their success, 
We are to conclude that as president, he will love America's citizens and be committed to the success of all. Nine. There is a common metaphor that identifying with your family's national heritage makes you a member of that nationality. Suppose your grandparents came from Italy and you identify with your Italian ancestors. You may proudly state that you are Italian. The metaphor is natural. Literally, you have been American for two generations. Trump made use of this commonplace metaphor in attacking U.S. District Court Judge Gonzalo Curiel, who is American, born and raised in the United States. Trump said he was a Mexican, and therefore would hate him and tend to rule against him in a case brought against Trump University for fraud. 10. Then there is the metaphor system used in the phrase to call someone out. First, the word out. There is a general metaphor that knowing is seeing, as in, I see what you mean. Things that are hidden inside something cannot be seen and hence not known. While things are not hidden but out in public can be seen and hence known. To out someone is to make their private knowledge public. To call someone out is to publicly name someone's hidden misdeeds thus allowing for public knowledge and appropriate consequences. This is the basis for the Trumpian metaphor that naming is identifying. Thus, naming your enemies will allow you to identify correctly who they are, get to them, and so allow you to defeat them. Hence, just saying radical Islamic terrorists allows you to pick them out, get at them, and annihilate them. And conversely, if you don't say it, you won't be able to pick them out and annihilate them. Thus, a failure to use those words means that you are protecting those enemies, in this case Muslims, that is, potential terrorists because of their religion. I'll stop here, though I could go on. There are 10 uses of people's unconscious normal brain mechanisms that are manipulated by Trump and his followers for his overriding purpose, to be elected president, to be given absolute authority with a Congress and Supreme Court, and so to have his version of strict, f framer, f strict father morality govern America into the indefinite future. These 10 forms of, of using people's everyday brain mechanisms for his own purposes have gotten Trump the Republican nomination. But millions more have seen and heard Trump and company on TV and heard them on the radio. The media pundits have not described those 10 mechanisms or other brain mechanisms that surreptitiously work on the unconscious minds of the public, even though the result is that big lies repeated over and over are being believed by a growing number of people. Even if he loses the election, Trump will have changed the brains of millions of Americans with future consequences. It is vitally important people know the mechanisms used to transmit big lies and to stick them into people's brains without their awareness. It is a form of mind control. People in the media have a duty to report it when they see it, but the media comes with constraints. 
Certain things have not been allowed in public political discourse in the media. Reporters and commentators are supposed to stick to what is conscious and with literal meaning. But most real political discourse makes use of unconscious thought, which shapes conscious thought via unconscious framing and commonplace conceptual metaphors. It is crucial for the history of the country and the world, as well as the planet, that all of this be made public. And it is not just the media. Such responsibility rests with ordinary citizens who become aware of unconscious brain mechanisms like the ten we have just discussed. This responsibility also rests with the Democratic Party and their campaigns at all levels. Is the use of the public's brain mechanisms for communication necessarily immoral? Understanding how people really think can be used to communicate truths, not big lies or ads for products. This knowledge is not just known to cognitive linguistics. It is taught in marketing courses in business schools, and the mechanisms are used in advertising to get you to buy what advertisers are selling. We have learned to recognize ads. They are set off by themselves. Even manipulative corporate advertising with political intent, like ads for fracking, is not as dangerous as big lies leading to authoritarian government determining the future of our country. So how can Democrats do better? First, don't think of an elephant. Remember not to repeat false conservative claims and then rebut them with facts. Side note, that's what I do all the fucking time. Instead, go positive. Give a positive, truthful framing to undermine claims to the contrary. Use the facts to support positively framed truth. Use repetition. Second, start with values, not policies and facts and numbers. Say what you believe but haven't been saying. For example, progressive thought is built on empathy, on citizens caring about other citizens and working through our government to provide public resources for all, both businesses and individuals. Use history. That's how America started. The public resources used by businesses were not only roads and bridges, but public education a national bank, a patent office, courts for business cases, interstate commerce support, and of course the criminal justice system. From the beginning, the private depended on public resources, both private lives and private enterprise. Over time, those resources have included sewers, water and electricity, research universities and research support, computer science via the NSF, the internet, ARPA, pharmaceuticals and modern medicine, the NIH, satellite communication, NASA and NOA, and GPS systems and cell phones from the Defense Department. Private enterprise and private life utterly depend on public resources. Have you ever said this? Elizabeth Warren has, almost no other public figures. And stop defending the government. Talk about the public, 
the people, Americans, the American people, public servants, and good government, and take back freedom. Public resources provide for freedom in private enterprise and private life. The conservatives are committed to privatizing just about everything and to eliminating funding for most public resources. The contribution of public resources to our freedoms cannot be overstated. Start saying it. And don't forget the police. Effective, respectful policing is a public resource. Chief David O. Brown of the, of the Dallas Police got it right. Training, community policing, knowing the people you protect. And don't ask too much of the police. Citizens have a responsibility, a responsibility to provide funding so the police don't have to do jobs that should be done by others. Unions need to go on the offensive. Unions are instruments of freedom. Freedom from corporate servitude. Employers call themselves job creators. Working people are profit creators for the employers. And as such, they deserve a fair share of the profits and respect and acknowledgement. Say it. Can the public create jobs? Of course. Fixing infrastructure will create jobs by providing more public resources that private lives and businesses depend on. Public resources to create more public resources. Freedom creates opportunity that creates more freedom. Third, keep out of nasty exchanges and attacks. Keep out of shouting matches. One can speak powerfully without shouting. Obama sets the pace, civility, values, positivity, good humor, and real empathy are powerful. Calmness and empathy in the face of fury are powerful. Bill Clinton won because he oozed empathy with his voice, his eye contact, and his body. It wasn't his superb ability as a policy wonk, but the empathy he projected and inspired. Values come first. Facts and policies follow in the service of values. They matter, but always support values. Give up identity politics. No more women's issues, black issues, Latino issues. Their issues are all real and need public discussion, but they all fall under freedom issues, human issues. And address poor whites. Appalachian and Rust Belt whites deserve your attention as much as anyone else. Don't surrender their fate to Trump, who will just increase their suffering. And remember JFK's immortal, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Empathy, devotion, love, pride in our country's values, public resources to create freedoms, and adulthood. Be prepared. You have to understand Trump to stand calmly up to him and those running with him all over the country. All right, folks.
that's the end of George Lakoff's essay, Understanding Trump. I found it to be absolutely enlightening um, and kind of a game changer in a certain way for me when he pointed out how ridiculous it is that I actually try and use truth and facts and logic when that has absolutely nothing to do with how people are making their political decisions these days. And I, I'm not naming only Trump supporters in that. I'm anybody who saw the first day of the Democratic National Convention, what a fucking shit show that was. Jesus. Um, but that's a whole nother conversation. I think the I think the largest takeaway for me personally from this essay is a better understanding of the people who support... Well, I'm not even going to say support. I'm going to say follow. The people that follow Trump. Um, they're clearly uh, being brainwashed. I, I mean, I, I know that term gets thrown around all the time when it comes to politics, but I hope I did a decent enough job of reading Mr. Lakoff's words to get across exactly the mechanisms that he was describing that are at work here. Um, I decided very early on in reading it that I was going to limit any any personal thing that I said because it's not like I was reading in a decidedly different voice than what than my normal speaking voice and that could just get confusing and I also wanted to make it clear because he wrote the whole thing in the first person and if I'm going back and forth with commentary that would just get confusing so Although I interjected a couple of times, um, I hope it was reasonably clear <clears throat> that I was simply reading his words for better or for worse. Uh, there are certain things in there that I, you know, I, I mean, I think everyone should take issue with certain things that he said, right? because otherwise you would just be under his mind control. So what I really got out of this was a really great understanding of just how this whole Trump phenomenon has happened which is reassuring on one level, but on another level scares the ever-loving ever shit out of me because uh, 
Democrats are not famous in modern times for mobilizing people to vote or having a particularly educated populace as glaringly demonstrated on the first day of the DNC. Um, as a bit of a side note, the way I look at the Bernie or Bust people on the first day of the DNC, or at least the first footage of it that I saw, because I don't have a television to be able to watch it live, um, I liken it to if you're a sports fan any sport doesn't matter you know the end of the season you've got the quarterfinals then you've got the semifinals then you've got the finals um i sort of look at the primary as the quarterfinals the general as the semifinals and then the election as the finals um, you know, it's, I know that's not an exact accurate depiction. I should probably go back one step further, but anyway, the people who showed up at the DNC with, you know, the, you know, all the Bernie people and for the record, for what it's worth, I voted for Bernie in the primaries. Okay. So I was a supporter but I also get how this shit works. And so let's say we're talking basketball and in the quarterfinals, your team loses and they're eliminated from the competition. But it, you decide to go to the semifinal game, which determines who goes to the ultimate final, right? And you go dressed up in your team's gear. Your team's not playing. They're out, mathematically and otherwise. They have absolutely no fucking chance. And you go and you root for your team who's not playing, and you boo the team from your conference who is playing. Ultimately, you want your conference to win, but you're booing the team from your conference because you're pissed that they beat your team. How does that make any fucking sense? To see people on their side of the stadium... Wearing the jersey of a team from their conference. Maybe I should be doing football. I don't know basketball that well. <laughs> Actually sort of apparently cheering on the competition. The quote-unquote enemy. How does that make any fucking sense? And booing Elizabeth Warren 
I, I mean, that, that whole, it just doesn't make any fucking sense to me. I was so disgusted. So, I know I didn't, you know, I, I could probably practice and practice and practice and, and really get the reading of the essay much cleaner and more polished than it is here but I think I'm just going to put it out the way it is in uh, in respect for the timeliness of things uh, I'll post a link to the actual article and I really hope if you regardless of where you are on the political spectrum and where you are in the world I think this is an important piece to be shared around. If you don't like the way I read it, share the written version of it. You know, I, 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 I'm not, I'm not trying to boost myself here. I, I'm trying to get this idea out there. I'm trying to get it, you know, to where people will absorb what he says in this essay, uh, in whatever form that takes. I'm happy with and if there's anybody out there who listened to my reading of it or has read it who disagrees by all means email me at lifeofrileypod at gmail.com tweet me at lifeofrileypod and let me know what you think you want to come on the show and argue, uh, you know, your side? I'm 100% on board with that. I also think that even Trump supporters should listen to this and, re you know, read it or listen to it and absorb the science that he's talking about because this isn't theory. This isn't a guess. This isn't a hypothesis. He is saying this is how our brains work and this is why Trump is succeeding. In the piece, Lakoff mentions Tony Schwartz, the guy who ghost wrote the best-selling book uh, Art of the Deal back in the late 80s for Donald Trump. The guy spent I think it was 18 months every single day shadowing Trump to write that book. Tony Schwartz has come out recently very ardently and stridently against Donald Trump's presidency. I've posted some about it on my personal Facebook I'd like to mention a specific quote from Mr. Schwartz that was at the end of a New Yorker interview that came out within the last week or two. Just for the people who might be listening to this, who do support Trump, who don't believe that you're under the effects of mind control, um... This is a guy that knows Mr. Trump 
intimately, very, very well. He has seen exactly how the man works. And this is what he had to say. If Trump is elected president, the millions of people who voted for him and believe that he represents their interests will learn what anyone who deals closely with him already knows, that he couldn't care less about them. That's from a guy that man knows the, the man intimately, everybody. Learn about politics. Those of you here in the States that are listening, understand how this shit works. The president isn't the one with all the power. But their respective party and their respective dogma, especially in the case of the right, is strengthened by who has the majority in Congress, who has the majority in the Supreme Court. And that's what the GOP is shooting for right now. And that's what the Democrats are trying to even the field or obviously tip it in their favor. If the Republicans get Congress, which they've had for all of Obama's presidency just about, which is why they've been able to follow their concept of the politics of no... If they maintain Congress and get a demagogue like Trump in the White House and then he can appoint people to the Supreme Court, there's going to be nuclear bombs falling. <laughs> I mean, we're fucked if that happens. I'm sorry. I have many Republican friends that I love, but your party is scaring the fuck out of me at this point. And uh, the Democrats, frankly, are disappointing the shit out of me at this point. So hopefully between now and November, people will educate themselves, people will pay attention. Uh, maybe the Democrats will stop being such pussies and um, actually encourage people to go out and vote, which is something the Republicans are really good at, but the D Democrats don't seem to be able to pass along to the people that believe what they do. You know, I, I mean, the fact that Bernie supporters can't understand that that battle is over, but the war continues is shocking to me. So anyway, uh, heading and closing in on an hour and a quarter at this point. So I'm going to get ready to sign off. Um, quick reminder on my website, life of Riley, uh, .com, There is an Amazon banner, which is an awesome way to support the show. If you shop on Amazon, just go to my website first. It's one extra click. Click on the Amazon button. Takes you to Amazon. Anything you buy, I get a little teeny-weeny, tiny taste of. 
uh, in thanks for sending people to their site. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and review the show on iTunes. Again, it's a simple thing that doesn't take that much time, but it's massively important. Massively important. If you or anybody you know like to listen to podcasts on a platform that this show is not available on, please let me know and I will find a way to get Life of Riley available on that platform. These are all things that we're working on making happening. Uh, at the moment, as far as I know, we're on Podbean, which does have their own app, and iTunes. Um, but I want to make sure anyone who wants to listen has the ability to. So I guess I'll close it out. I hope you guys like this. I hope you understand why I put it out. This is a very important cause to me. It doesn't have anything to do with my personal political beliefs so much as how just yucky I think Donald Trump and the way that the Republicans are running this campaign are. It just sickens me. Thanks again to Kate Minot for cluing me in to this essay. You rock, sweetheart. Thanks as always to producer Wendy for cracking the whip and keeping me on point as much as she possibly can. Thanks to you all for listening. Don't forget to share with your friends, tell your coworkers. That's how we get listens. That's how we get ears on this thing. All right, everybody. I love you. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back soon with a little bit more of the fun stuff that you might be more accustomed to. Love you. Bye-bye.